They want those companies, first of all, to commit to zero scope three carbon emissions by 2050 or earlier. They want them to set science-based targets that are actually verified and audited through that process. They want companies to disclose their climate lobbying efforts. They want better delineation of roles and responsibilities on corporate boards as it relates to sustainability. And they want additional functionality from companies or progress from companies around governance as well. And so investors are playing an incredibly important role in this process. ESG has exploded into compliance and business consciousness in 2021. Join Tom Fox, the voice of compliance on the ESG report and learn about sustainability risks, opportunities and issues that business leaders and compliance professionals need to know about regarding ESG. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode. And today I have with me Bill Davis. Bill has an interesting background and career, and we're going to talk about greenwashing and perhaps how to remedy that. So first of all, Bill, thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Thanks for having me, Tom. Bill, what's your professional background? It's a little bit different probably than some of the other portfolio managers that you have on. I actually, prior to starting Stance, I co-founded a boutique investment firm in Boston. Prior to that, I actually ran a venture and private equity backed renewable energy company. And I started my career in the marketing data sciences field some time back. So could you tell us a little bit about your company, Stance Capital, and what led you to founding it? Sure. So Stance Capital was formed in the summer of 2016. Really, I think that the point of Stance Capital is to prove that if portfolios, and I'm specifically talking about public equity portfolios, if they're built a certain way, it's possible to align capital with values without sacrificing performance. And that sounds like a lot, but keep in mind that this came on the heels of the SLI movement or socially responsible investing movement, where I think the perception after 30 or 40 years was that concessionary returns were going to come along with aligning capital with SRI values. And so it was very important to us to actually prove that actually values alignment is free because our feeling is that's how you're going to actually unlock and unleash lots of capital flowing into this space. Bill, I'd like to turn to an article that you've written around greenwashing. I'd first like to ask, could you tell us what greenwashing is? So at its simplest, I think it is in the environmental space specifically, hence the green. It is making promises which are actually not true, either in whole or in part. So it's basically making a marketing claim that the reality doesn't quite back up. And then why is it such a big problem in the ESG space? Part of this is sort of a bigger societal problem of sort of declining importance of truthfulness in general. If you hire somebody to do something and they don't do it quite right, you end up being disappointed, maybe angry. But if you feel like that there is a ethical partnership or something that goes beyond sort of the basic contract and it isn't done, I think that sort of adds, number one, a level of frustration. But I just think in some ways it's worse. And I also would go on to say that it is prevalent, I think, throughout the ecosystem, which is to say that the companies that are being rated do everything they can to sort of amplify truth in many situations or obfuscate it. It can happen a little bit at the ratings agency level. It certainly happens 
within public equity portfolios that have been built and are being marketed as well. Let me take a step back because you have used a couple of phrases already, values and ethical business practices. Many of the listeners to this podcast are in the broader compliance space. So they deal with doing business in compliance, doing business ethically. And if I could maybe, as I said, step back and ask you, why are those two values so important to not only you, but to Stance Capital? Good question, Tom. I think it's important to me because I got to a point in my life where I started thinking more about the world that my kids were going to inherit than maybe the world that you and I occupy. As such, that essentially led me to thinking about the importance of sustainability, the real threat posed by climate risk. I think that we have a limited amount of time to reverse a trajectory of global warming. And so I don't think that there's time for sort of baby steps at this point in time. I believe it's a serious problem. I think that most investors have come around to the notion that it is a serious problem and that it threatens future returns. And therefore, I think it's important that we get it right. And, you know, having said that, though, Tom, I think that one thing that's very clear to me is not everybody has the same values, right? I mean, your values and my values are probably pretty different, even if thematically we're on the same page. And so, That's part of where the problem starts, which is that there is no real standard for what it is that I do. And I don't actually think that there should be a like a hard standard because you can be an ethical investor and believe that investing in energy companies, by that I mean fossil fuel companies that are successfully or ambitiously managing that transition is actually important. Or you can be an investor that says, listen, fossil fuels are bad. They're polluting our air, they're polluting our waterways, therefore I just don't want to have anything to do with them. And there's no right or wrong answer with either of those. It's a matter of being true to what it is that you say you're doing. And I think it's important that people understand what you're doing. And that's why that's why I think greenwashing is a bit of a problem because I think it's very, very misleading at a time when we really can't afford to be misled. So where do you see the vast majority of greenwashing coming from today? I take an issue with the direction which I think a lot of the pundits have taken and perhaps a lot of the, you know, just the press in general. I actually think that most of the false advertising in the ESG space isn't deliberate greenwashing. And when I say most, I mean the vast majority. I think it's really just chasing shiny objects. I think that there's a lot of firms that have rushed to market with product because they see that this product is in demand. They don't really understand the product. They buy ratings from outside firms. They don't understand how the algorithms are constructed. They don't understand what goes into the rating. And they just really have never thought about it. They're just being a follower in the space. I think that there is a problem of real greenwashing, which is intentionally misleading the industry or investors when, say, a product is launched that markets itself as fossil-free, but it contains a handful of large fossil fuel companies. I mean, to me, that's not truth in advertising. Again, I think that those tend to get a lot of highlights, just like Elon Musk talking about how ESG is garbage because all of a sudden he lost his Dow Jones sustainability rating. That stuff is all, to me, just noise. I think the bigger problem is really just sort of sloppiness in the industry. Are ESG data aggregators, (laughs) are they part of the problem, part of the solution, or perhaps both? I actually don't think they're part of the problem, and I think they do the best they can. You know, they each have a proprietary methodology, and I know that you have had guests on that have talked about this previously, but if you take three or four different companies, each with proprietary methodologies, you're going to end up with very different scores. And that's why 
I think that there's industry frustration that the correlation between the rating agencies is so low that a company can be in the 90th percentile by one of them and the 20th by another. That's a pretty wide gap. However, it is incumbent upon those who are buying ratings to actually understand what those underlying methodologies are and to identify the one that comports with their own view of the world, the same as you know applies to a portfolio manager or an investment strategy. If you don't understand how the PM or the PM team is thinking about construction and their own framework, then I don't think it's the fault of the PM. I think it's the fault of the buyer at that point. One of the things I've been thinking about, writing about and podcasting on is the impact of the Russian invasion of Ukraine on ESG. And we could probably have a much broader discussion about that, but How does that sort of tie into either greenwashing or the entire E of ESG, in your opinion? If we're talking about Russia specifically, it's hard to talk just about the E because it's a country that is notoriously bad from an environmental standpoint. It's got horrific human rights violation. There's your S. And governance is largely non-existent. And so it is an ESG problem. And it, it builds on what I was talking about a few minutes ago, which is that In many cases, and this I think primarily applies to the European ratings firms or the ratings work that is done in Europe, I should say, but it's not new news that Russia is bad at all these things. What seems to be new news is the fact that, oh, actually I'm doing business with companies that are doing business with Russia and I never should have been. And so I think part of the problem here is what I described earlier, which is that The buyers of ESG ratings data are, they're not doing a full job in understanding what they're buying. Secondly, I do think that part of the nature of the world right now is things are happening so quickly that sometimes it's difficult to think of everything in advance. Now, I do think that ESG fund managers have gotten used to thinking about China and other countries with repressive regimes or significant human rights violations and incorporating that into their ESG. It's a bit of a mystery why Russia got a free pass on that. But I am mindful that, you know, a pandemic came along and I don't think anybody was building portfolios with a pandemic in mind. So some of this stuff happens and then you say, oh, how do I bulletproof this so that it doesn't happen again? In our particular case, we ended up thinking about paid sick leave as a material risk factor, which we had never actually considered before the pandemic. And what we did was we went out and gathered data, and ultimately we created an additional risk factor, which applies to some of the industry groups in the, within the universe that we invest in. And so some of it, I think, is going to be reactive, but I think a lot more of ESG should be proactive. And I think that investors and the people building portfolios need to be thinking about regimes like Russia and whether it belongs in portfolios before it turns into a war on them. You know, it's really interesting because one of the outcomes I see for ESG out of the Russian invasion is exactly what you said. The companies need to be more proactive and even integrating the three letters together in ways they haven't done so before. And frankly, I can't think of a better example than paid six leave. Now, I understand that came out of the pandemic, but it shows to me how you can take events that may not have been either seen as risk events or even material risk events, put that into your calculus and your analysis and allow you to use that in a much more proactive way so that when the next event happens, you can respond more nimbly, quickly if you need to. Would that be a fair assessment? Yeah, I think that's right. And 
There's maybe even a better and more complicated example out there, which is BLM, Black Lives Matter. I mean, it really seemed to have taken, you know, the combination of COVID and the George Floyd murder and the BLM movement to wake up corporate America to the fact that there is just so much structural racism, which is sort of packaged into our economy. And most corporations have significantly stepped up their social justice, their DEI efforts, their inclusion efforts as a result of that when they didn't think to do it before, even though all the underlying conditions were prevalent before. That's a great example because I'm going to pick up on your last point of boards and corporations understanding now they needed to fit that into the calculus because to me, that fits into the G. So we've now used two examples to show how a more integrated holistic approach to ESG can give you a more effective tool, whether that tool is investment, whether that tool is responding to market conditions, whether that tool is protection against reputational damage. So I really appreciate your thoughts on the proactive nature of where companies should take ESG. In order to answer this, Tom, I'm actually going to It's going to sound like I'm sidestepping your question. I'm actually not, but I'm going to give you a little bit of background. About five or six years ago, the California retirement system known as CalPERS, following the whole Paris Climate Accord, decided to carbon footprint their investment portfolio, which, as you might imagine, is quite large and quite broad. I mean, they're a big enough investor that they probably own everything. And when they went through that exercise, they noticed something very interesting, which is that just 100 companies globally are responsible for something like 70% of all man-made carbon emissions since 1985, which to me is really kind of a frightening figure. But on the other hand, it kind of scopes the problem because if there's general agreement that businesses need to decarbonize, we now know where we need to go in order to solve that problem. Or put differently, you can't solve the problem unless you can get those 100 companies in line. So what has happened since then is a coalition of investors has formed, which is known as Climate Action 100 plus and plus because it turns out there's another 60 or so companies that are sort of enabling companies to the 100. And that coalition now consists of 700 investors representing $69 trillion of investable assets, leaning into about 166 companies worldwide. So I think that those corporations certainly understand what is on the mind of investors, which is And I'm going to speak specifically about the E, but you're going to see the S and the G in here as well. They want those companies, first of all, to commit to zero scope three carbon emissions by 2050 or earlier. They want them to set science-based targets that are actually verified and audited through that process. They want companies to disclose their climate lobbying efforts. They want better delineation of roles and responsibilities on corporate boards as it relates to sustainability, and they want additional functionality from companies or progress from companies around governance as well. And so investors are playing an incredibly important role in this process that when people talk about ESG, yeah, well, you know, it's greenwash, it's this and it's that. They need to remember that there's two parts of it. There's the investing in the companies part, and then there's what the big investors are doing to hold those companies accountable and manage risk, right? Because these big investors are doing all of this because they believe these companies represent portfolio risk if they don't actually get on the right side of the equation. And so I think there's a lot going on in this space around governance. Some of it is enlightened, some of it is out of enlightened self-interest, and some of it is kicking and screaming. But 
companies are going to get there one way or the other, or there's going to be a different board of directors that get the chance to make some of these decisions. So I have lived in Houston for 40 years, and I can't think of a better example for that than Exxon. They learned that lesson and a very powerful lesson that you have to listen to your shareholders and investors as well. Let me turn a little bit, perhaps down the road into the future and ask you if Do you see there's too much complacency around ESG reporting? And if so, is there a solution? Yeah, I mean, this is sort of maybe a slippery slope into regulation. I mean, when we say ESG reporting, are you referring to companies reporting or are you referring to investment firms reporting on their own portfolios or both? Actually, I was referring to companies reporting on their own ESG programs, both verifying, auditing and setting goals. There's certainly been complacency. I mean, I actually, Stance Capital acts as a lead and co-lead engagement firm within Climate Action 100. So we're actually, I've been working with an S&P 500 company for the last three years on this. And I'm also aware of being a part of that group, a lot of other work that's taking place in other companies. But I would tell you that you know, it has been voluntary. The companies that are now reporting aren't doing it because they have to. They're doing it because their investors are convincing them that they have to, which are two slightly different things. As you point out, Exxon found out the hard way, but there's going to be a lot of other companies that are going to follow Exxon, I think, if there isn't significant strides and progress made in the next couple of years. I mean, there is a natural tension, Tom, because publicly held companies do wish to keep certain things private. The one thing that I have come to understand is it's usually the companies that have made the least progress that fight the hardest to keep things confidential. And the ones that generally are out in front of this issue that have set ambitious scope three goals that are reporting on actual scope three emissions that you know are setting science-based targets and all that, those companies actually are quite forthright and transparent. So Generally speaking, companies have been complacent, but their ability to remain complacent is diminishing by the day. And by the way, that applies to both public companies and even, let's say, private equity firms. And you're in Houston, so let's take a PE firm that owns a bunch of midstream and upstream oil and gas properties. It didn't used to be that LPs would even ask what's going on within your portfolio companies around ESG standards and metrics and performance expectations, that's all changing. And I think everybody is trying to figure out the right questions to ask. And I would say public company investors are the farthest along because they have banded together and they've agreed on what's important to them. Certainly big investors have and are forcing companies to move in this direction. Bill, you touched on or at least hinted at regulatory oversight. I was wondering what your thoughts are on the proposed SEC rules. Uh, Should the SEC be involved? Should the rules be modified? Or is this perhaps a starting point for further discussion? I think everything at this point is always subject to further discussion and refinement, certainly in the U.S. I've read the proposed rule. I think it's good. I think it's fair. I disagree with the critics who say it's overly burdensome. By the way, the companies that it applies to are very big companies that have armies of people And in some of the time that they spent arguing about these things, they could simply implement and report on them. So I don't find that that argument holds really a whole lot of weight for me. Having said that, however, I'm reminded of the proxy rules that got put in place under Dodd-Frank back in whenever it was, 2015 or so, I think think it was, might have been earlier. And the SEC was immediately sued by the Business Roundtable and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. 
which won the lawsuit on appeals and the SEC's proposed regulations were wiped out. Well, what happened in the following 12 months is that big investment firms filed something like 75 shareholder resolutions and ultimately got companies to voluntarily report things that they would have had to have reported under Dodd-Frank. So in some ways, I think a voluntary framework is preferable because it's kind of undoable. You know, like the nature of disclosure is once you start disclosing, you generally don't stop. If anything, you just kind of eke out a little bit more information over time. So I do think, though, that we need a good shot in the arm on this. And I think the SEC is providing it. And now that affects the companies themselves, right? What about the investment firms? My view on that is that ultimately we should end up with something like what is being implemented over the next few years in the EU, where investment firms apply for and receive sort of different gradation levels of authenticity as it relates to ESG, so that you could end up in that process with an investment product being branded as ESG Lite, which has sort of a defined term attached to it. And you could also have high levels of authenticity, and then investors can line up for what's important to them. What, in your opinion, should investors be looking for in this space, at least in the arena of corporate disclosures? I think investors should read sustainability reports from companies, but they should also read reports that are coming out of industry watchdogs. For example, I'm not going to name the company, but I'm thinking of one particular company that's been in the Dow Jones Sustainability Index for a long time, which they sort of openly tout in their annual corporate sustainability reports. Yet, if you go and look at the framework, which is the Climate Action 100 framework, which is increasingly being used by large, sophisticated investors, this is a company that gets very, very bad marks because they've been able to effectively greenwash their way into a sort of a voluntary, or I should say a self-reported document that ends up you know, getting them a, a gold star from Dow Jones, but they're not able to sort of do the same things when it comes to sort of verifiable data, which is what's being asked for. So I think for investors who care about this stuff, they should understand more about those companies. And I would also add one other point, which is there's lots of things to care about in ESG, including the S and the G. But I would suggest that many ESG investors are most concerned about climate risk. Otherwise, they would go into a more of a thematically specific portfolio around gender or social justice or something else. And I think it's important to note that there is a wealth of data out there and companies need to be asking portfolio managers why it is that they're investing in certain companies. So, you know, a lot of ESG portfolios are sort of heavy on, you know, mega cap tech and comm services companies. My own personal point of view, and it's not right or wrong, it's just a point of view, is that if you're concerned about climate risk by investing in companies that are part of the newer economy that don't generally have a climate problem to begin with, you're not actually doing anything about climate risk. So I actually think that there is room for products that are investing across as much of the economy as possible, including industrial companies, conceivably including energy companies that are successfully decarbonizing, is actually a viable investment thesis. And so I think investors need to kind of understand what that thesis is because that everything else flows from that. They need to know if they line up with that thesis. Bill, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I was wondering if our listeners wanted any more information on Stance Capital, on yourself, or really any of the topics we've touched upon in this podcast, what would be the best way for them to find out more information? 
we're an asset management firm and we manage an ETF under the ticker STNC. You can check that out. We have an eight and a almost half year track record in large cap ESG core. And you can learn about that at stancecap.com. So www.stancecap.com. Well, Bill, I wanted to thank you again for taking the time to me. This has been a really informative. I grade podcasts on how much did I learn and I learned a lot. So thank you again. I hope that we can continue this conversation. I hope so. Thanks, Tom, for having me.